In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Isaac. Good evening, everyone. How are we? Good. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave Hahn. I have been married to my lovely wife, Sheila, who is sitting here in the front row for about 20 years. Together, we have a 12-year-old son, another good-looking guy sitting in the front row. (laughs) Both Sheila and I grew up going to church, but have really only been believers for about the last 21 years or so. Not exactly sure. We'll find out when we get to heaven, I suppose. But what happened 21 years ago was a very different thing than what the first 26, 27 years would have been. As for me, I went to a variety of different churches because of the different faith backgrounds my parents had. My mom grew up Greek Orthodox. My dad grew up Catholic. They both kind of decided we're just going to go one way, and then we started going a bunch of other different ways. But most of the churches, the things that they had in common was that we had a fairly formal liturgy and an order of worship. We would say and sing and do a lot of the same things. And some of those things, to me as a kid, were kind of odd. There were a lot of robes and chalices, and there were smoking plates that were being swung on chains. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, I was a very curious kid, I still am a very curious guy, much to my wife's chagrin. She will often ask, can't you just leave things alone? And the answer is, no, I cannot. But as a kid in church, when I would ask, why do we do those things? Why do we say those things? Why is that guy wearing that? The answer would almost always be, I I don't know. We've just always done it that way. We've always done those things. Well, that just wasn't a good enough answer for a guy like me. So here's the thing. As I have gotten older and learned a little bit more, I've come to realize that there is incredible beauty in a lot of those traditions. Those things that are done and said have incredible beauty in them. But no one really talks about why we do those things or why we say those things. See, for Christians, the glory of God is the why behind everything that we do and say. We've been talking a lot here at Disciples Church about the what and the how of discipleship over the last few weeks, knowing that disciples follow, disciples 
abide, disciples multiply, disciples serve, disciples give. Tonight, though, we're going to be talking a lot about the why that's underneath every one of those what's and every one of those how's, especially in the life of a follower of Christ. Because if we miss the why, we could potentially end up with dead and empty religious behaviors. We end up checking boxes, we end up playing games to try and earn God's love, to try to earn God's favor. We can get arrogant because we think in having done those things, we're just crushing it. Or we can feel burned out because of our perceived failures in not accomplishing those things. Exhausted because we just can't do it all. See, knowing the why adds purpose and meaning behind every how and what. And when we don't know why, it can be frustrating. At least it is for me. I'm a big why asker. But understanding the why, on the other hand, is really helpful. Even if we don't like the answer, and even if we don't agree with it. And even if we aren't curious enough to ask it. And lastly, focusing on the why of Christianity reminds us that being a disciple is primarily not about the hows and the whats. We had Pharisees and religious leaders and scribes who were nailing the hows and the whats, and Jesus had the hardest words for them because they missed the why. They missed the heart. So it's critical for us as Christ followers to understand that God does not need us to get things done. He doesn't need us to follow. He doesn't need us to multiply. He doesn't need us to serve, and he doesn't need us to give but he wants us to, and he invites us to. Those two things are very different. So why then do disciples do and say all that they are called to say and do? I'm guessing you can guess the answer. It's to bring God glory. See, bringing God glory ought to be the heartbeat of every believer it is the why of the mission statement of Disciples Church. And we've tried hard to keep that mission statement in front of you. But we're going to say it once more this, morning, or this evening. It is this. We are disciples of Jesus Christ striving to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, community, teaching, and multiplication. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. That is who we are. Striving to glorify God. That is why we exist. Through gospel-centered worship, community, teaching, and multiplication. That is what we do. Now the Bible tells us that in and through all things, God will be glorified. There is no doubt. The point of your life, the point of my life, the point of every life in all of creation is to bring glory to God. End of story. And it is God's story after all. It's not ours. See, followers of God throughout history have always understood the importance of bringing God glory. 
and seeking to summarize their theological convictions about the essentials of Christian faith. As an example, leaders of the Protestant Reformation developed what are known today as the five solas. Sola is a Latin word which means alone. Those five are sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Now, Scripture teaches that God will be glorified in and through every single life, whether we are children of God or not. That perhaps is the most stunning thing to hear. See, glory will either come to God through the praise and the adoration of we, his children, because of the great love and mercy and grace that he has poured out upon us in the person of his Son, or glory will come to God when, on a day known only to the Father, his holy and perfect, righteous anger and judgment is cast down upon a wicked and unrepentant and unbelieving world. But he will be glorified. See, glory is one of those words that's hard to define. It's an idea that is hard to understand. And we have, as such, we have lots of other words that we try to use to describe it and to try to get our head around it, whether it be greatness or goodness, majesty, radiance, fullness, beauty, essence, renown, magnificence, splendor, or weight. And there are many more, I'm sure. But all of them are lacking. How could they not be? We are talking about an infinite God. So whether we understand glory completely or not, if we pay close attention to Scripture, there is one thing that is certain. God is fiercely committed to his name and his glory. When you realize it, you can't miss it. So listen to Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. It reads, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Did you hear it? God puts aside his anger so that we, more specifically the Israelites, would not be cut off, so that he would be glorified. It doesn't end on the Israelites, and it doesn't end on us. It ends on his glory. That is the why. And if you look at that passage, it's maybe two or three verses, but he says it four times. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. Now, Jesus gives us a further glimpse into the heart of God as it relates to his glory in John chapter 9. Verse 1 in chapter 9 reads, As he, speaking of Jesus, passed by, He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, 
this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Could it be, my friends, that it is not just the good things in life that God has designed to give him glory? Could it be that the things that we call bad are also meant for his glory? I think so. And that changes things. Incredibly, the Bible tells us that God's glory does not fade in the face of sin or death or evil or the results of sin or death or evil. Namely, trials and hardships and suffering. That's the result of those things. His glory does not fade in the face of the things that cause us to wonder where he is and what he is doing. And we have all wondered. Quite the contrary. See, God is sovereign, which means he is all-powerful and allows all suffering. The world is not spinning away with him trying to contain it. He allows those things in our life. Oftentimes leading us to ask the question, why? Why me, God? Why is this happening, God? Why am I here, God? And though his reasons may be many, none are greater than this, that he would receive glory. So let me ask you, if you got to sit face to face with God and ask him to give a reason for all of your why questions, and he simply said, so that I would be glorified, would you be satisfied with such an answer? Is it God's glory, church, that we desire most? Even if it means that we have to suffer, that's a scary, scary question, but it's one we ought to consider. See, for followers of Jesus Christ, suffering is not punishment. Here's how we know that, because the Bible tells us that the punishment that we deserved was placed fully on Jesus Christ, no more to be executed. Additionally, suffering is not the result of some unfulfilled promise of God. His promises are always yes and amen. I think there's even a song that says that. We just may not like how and when those promises are fulfilled. See, we as disciples were never promised a life without suffering. I mean, look at Jesus' own life on earth. In the three years of public ministry that we're aware of, Jesus was homeless. He was harassed by religious leaders. People were routinely plotting to kill him wherever he went. He was abandoned by his friends. He was punched. He was spat upon. He was falsely accused. His beard was torn from his face, and he, has, he was whipped with leather straps that had little pieces of metal at the ends of them just to make it more brutal. 
and he had a crown of thorns formed and plunged upon his head as he hung naked from a cross with nails driven into his hands and his feet. And upon that cross he was scorned and he was mocked. Worse than all of that, he took the sins of the world, yours and mine, upon his shoulders, though he never had sinned himself. So as disciples of Jesus Christ then, suffering should not surprise us. But it often does. Jesus warned us that we would have trouble in this world simply because we were his followers. Now, much of the trouble and the suffering in our lives are the results of our own less than great decisions. That's certainly true for me. But not all of it. Some of it's not. And that's the kind of suffering that we're talking about today. See, all of Jesus' disciples, save one, were martyred. And all of the disciples were persecuted and threatened and imprisoned. See, throughout history, the church of Christ has grown in part through the bloodshed and the persecution that God calls his own. And many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world today, suffering is their current reality. That's all they know. And for many of them, the suffering that they have endured, they consider a privilege for his name and for his glory. But be assured, friends, God is not glorified because of our suffering. So there's no need to try to smile through the pain. Rather, God is glorified by what he does and who he is in spite of and in and through that suffering. See, it is in the face of sin that we see a Savior who took our place and absorbed the fatal blow meant for us. And it's in the face of death that we see a risen king who reigns in life eternal and he cries, come forth to all of those that he foreknew. And it is in the face of evil and darkness that we see his righteousness and his glorious light. God's glory does not depend on us or any circumstance when we are suffering, when we're weak, when we're faithless, when we're guilty of cosmic treason, all of creation proclaims how good is God that he would love these, the unlovable. And when we're strong, and when we're faithful, and we walk closely with him, all of creation proclaims how good is God that he would give to them his very self. And in so doing, Give them the strength and the faith and the love that they most need but could never ever muster on their own. It's only in the kingdom of God that glory is defined through the innocent dying for the guilty, the perfect suffering for the imperfect, and the eternal giving his life for the finite. That is not how this world works. But that is how the glory of God works. And Isaiah chapter 6 says that the whole earth is filled with it. 
So what does that mean? The whole earth is filled with his glory. Essentially, it means that God's glory has not been hidden. That's good news. But it also means that we are without excuse. There is no one who will leave this life, stand before God and say, I had no idea. I just didn't know. It also means that in seeing his glory, we get a glimpse of who he is. See, God is wooing us unto himself through bringing glory to himself. Author C.S. Lewis recognized the wooing of, of God in his own life, and he said, Glory, as Christianity teaches me to hope for it, turns out to satisfy my original desire and reveal an element in that desire which I had not noticed. By ceasing for a moment to consider my own wants, I have begun to learn better what I really wanted. C.S. Lewis is saying that the glory of God reveals what our hearts are actually after. And through that revelation, we are pointed to God the Father who accepts us in Christ. Do you know that everything in this life that reveals God's glory is pointing to something bigger than itself? And it awakens us to the fact that we have been made and created for something bigger than this world has to offer. Scripture tells us that there are aspects of God's glory that are hidden. But there are also aspects of God's glory that are available and visible to anyone. Namely, the most obvious being his creation. All the sights, all the sounds, all the smells and tastes and textures of everything that he has made. Everything that he has made by speaking it into existence with a word. Even the things that we don't see. My son Seth and I have been recently geeking out on all of the animals that they are just now discovering. We're just now discovering certain animals. And we've been exploring for a while. And the same thing is true with the heavens, right? We're continually learning how much bigger things actually are than we actually thought. This universe is bigger. This creation is much bigger and broader and deeper than we can possibly imagine. And he spoke it all into existence with a word. And the more that we discover, the bigger and more magnificent God appears. See, God made everything from nothing. He didn't have a warehouse full of stuff wondering what it was that he was going to build. That's not how God does things because God has no limits. He's not limited to resources. That's how we do things because we are incredibly limited. So let me give you a personal example. I built a farm table and a couple of benches a few years ago. Much to the amazement of anyone who knows me, by the way, that is not my gift. <laughs> Here's how I did it. I looked up the plans on the internet, I took the printed supply list to Menards, and I gave those plans to a man in a blue vest. 
And that man in the blue vest typed some stuff into a computer, and he told me to go around back and pick up that stuff. So I grabbed the things that he told me to grab, took them home, borrowed my neighbor's miter saw, and I followed the step-by-step instructions. And after about eight hours or so, probably too long, I had myself a table and benches. And I ended up building an okay-looking table and benches. But before we get too excited, it's important to recognize a few other things about this process. The computer that I got on was made with materials that God made from nothing. I used plans that came from the brain of a man that God made from nothing. I cut wood that came from trees that God made from nothing. I drove screws which were made of minerals of the earth that God made from nothing into the aforementioned wood. Now, I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. Like I said, the table looks okay. No one's marveled at it or anything. (laughs) Not the way that people marvel at the Grand Canyon or the Julian Alps. That's for certain. But even if the table that I built was worthy of such a claim, it's highly unlikely that anyone was going to ask to see the stuff that I used to build it. See, when something that another person has done or made captures our attention, we are rightly drawn to the one who made it. Without giving much consideration to the tools or the materials that they used. Nobody cares about the baseball bat that Christian Yelich uses to hit home runs. Nobody cares about the football that Aaron Rodgers throws touchdowns with. We are drawn to the creativity and the ability that an individual has to make and do stuff. Because in and through a person's skill sets and creativity, we see a reflection of God. We see his glory. So here's the point. God has not made good things or given good things so that our praise would be directed at those good things. Rather, he gives us good gifts so that we might worship him. The one who gave nature Family, friends, children, money, food, drink, health, sex, you name it. These are all gifts meant to stir our hearts in worship so that we would adore him and so that we would glorify him. And we rob God of his glory when our affections rest on his creation at the expense of he, the creator. So creation is not the only place that we bear witness to God's glory. He is a personal God, after all. In the Old Testament in particular, God's personal presence is referred to as the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is a Hebrew word meaning to settle in or to dwell with. And we see God dwelling intimately among his people In the Old Testament, we see God's glory filling the temple. 
We see his glory and his light filling the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It appeared in a cloud and appeared in a pillar of fire in the Egyptian desert as he was guiding his people to the promised land. And then one day, we see Moses, the one chosen by God to free his people and lead them to said promised land, asking to see God's glory. Beginning in Exodus chapter 33, verse 21, we read, And the Lord answered, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. From that moment, Moses meets God and receives the Ten Commandments on two tablets. And as he comes down the mountain with the two tablets in hand, his face is radiating with light because he had seen, in part, God's glory. Fast forward 1,500 years. We find the glory of God in a man who, like Moses, became radiant at the top of a mountain before his followers. God's glory has become intensely personal and abundantly clear in the person of Jesus Christ. Through his birth to a virgin girl from a nowhere town, we see his glory. In his holy love, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. In his brutal death on a cross meant for criminals, not the king of kings. In his becoming sin so that the unrighteous could be made righteous. And in his impossible resurrection from a tomb that could not hold him. See, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed to his father knowing that his time on earth was nearing its end. In John 17, we read, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, in our time and place, the full glory of God is veiled. Moses' face needed to be veiled when the Israelites saw him come down from the mountain. The Bible tells us that for now, we know and we see in part, like a dim mirror. But one day we will see God's glory in all its fullness. And on the day that our faith becomes sight and we see Jesus face to face, the partial passes away. And we shall know fully, the Bible says, even as we are fully known. But there's more. Unbelievably, there is more. 
Later on in John 17, verse 22, we are told that we who know Jesus Christ share in his glory. Jesus prayed, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Did you notice the tenses in the verbs of that verse? You have given me, I have given to them. Past tense. By the way, past tense 2,000 years ago, past tense. It is the already and the not yet that we live in, my friends. And what I mean by that is that God is not bound by time the way that we are. He stands over time making declarations like those because yesterday, today, and tomorrow are places that God is. Jesus declares in that passage that we are already glorified because of him. He lives in us. And we will be glorified because of him. The Bible says that he's coming on the clouds to bring us to where he is, to give us new eternal bodies and to reign and rule with him forever and ever. That is what awaits those who believe. And that is what awaits his disciples. And that is what we are. All of this disciples' church is why we follow and abide. It's why we serve and give and multiply. It's why we do and say all that we say and do. The Apostle Paul said it this way, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Our Father, all of this is by you and is from you and is for you. And it is our heart's desire that all glory would be yours. Would you open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to who you are and what you have done in ways that we have not yet seen or understood. And let your glory be seen in us even as you are in us. As we share tonight in the Lord's Supper, would you remind us of Jesus' body given and his blood shed for us. Remind us of his suffering so that when we suffer in this life, you would bring us gladness in knowing that all glory is yours no matter the circumstance. Because you are sovereign and you are present and you are good. Help us, Lord, not to lose heart because we know there is a day coming when you will return for us. And on that day, we shall see you as you truly are glorious. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.